Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House. Hey, thanks for listening today. It's real good to real good to have you. Uh, so this conversation, I think, was really good with Amy Helm. I think Amy and I were both surprised by um, the quality of the conversations. She seemed to really like my questions, and I for sure really loved her answers. Uh, Amy Helm grew up surrounded by some of the most influential musicians in American Roots music, including her father, Levon Helm, legendary drummer and singer for the band. That also meant that her childhood was a, quote, very colorful experience where she was raised by, quote, a village of brilliant and talented people who were also wrestling with the grips of addiction. When she was a kid, she liked kid things, just like a normal kid. Case in point, she attended the fabled 1976 concert, The Last Waltz, where she was five years old. Her most prominent memory of the concert, all the candy and snacks her and the other kids were given backstage. She also didn't have a great relationship with her dad until she was a young adult. Levon took her on the road to tour with his blues band, The Barn Burners. He thought she was ready, and it was trial by fire each night on the road for young Amy. She learned so much from that experience. After that, she and her dad started his much-loved rambles at the barn in his Woodstock home. Those nights started as a rent party for Levon, who had just overcome addiction, survived throat cancer, and had just filed for bankruptcy. They soon grew into a Woodstock institution, featuring artists such as Emmylou Harris, Alan Toussaint, Elvis Costello, Phil Lesh, and many more. After Levon died, Amy decided to record and release her first solo album at age 44. Now she's on her third record, the excellent and very personal What the Flood Leaves Behind. She also, thankfully, has been able to break the cycle of addiction in her own life, raising two young sons as a single mom. Amy's brought the best of her childhood into their lives with lots of music. On the album, she reflects on the people who raised her and how they did their best. She ruminates on creativity out of loss in the song Verse 23, written by MC Taylor, a.k.a. His Golden Messenger, particularly with the line, What the flood leaves behind is what we've got to make. Amy wanted to record the album in the Mexican desert, which I fully support. However, after crunching numbers, it made more sense to use the barn, the space her dad had designed and built specifically for musicians. That ended up being so clutch in the making of this music. Being in the space where she learned to sing and watch some of her dad's most joyful performances allowed her and producer Josh Kaufman to fully relax and lean into these songs. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Amy Helm. We'll take a listen to a song from her new album. We'll hear Cotton and the Cane, and then we'll get to our conversation with Amy Helm on Basic Falk.
Thank you so much for talking to me today. This is so rad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so so honored to be asked and to be part of it. Uh, I have been spending the past couple of days doing a deep dive on your life. And I hope, like, I was writing questions up until the last minute. So I hope that this is a good experience for everyone because you have, it's like, there's just so much to talk about. Um, the new album is beautiful. Uh, so let's just dive right in. Great. Let's do it. Okay. First, I want to talk about women. Mm. Um, you're a musician who has been surrounded by, mentored by, performed with a lot of like incredibly influential men your mm. entire life, mm-hmm. like your dad being a huge part of your experience. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to start talking about the women, like where did the women show up in your musician experience? Yeah, what an interesting question. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, when I was 13, maybe 12, I heard Aretha Franklin for the first time. And that set me on fire in a way that like all of these people I'd had around me that were mostly male teachers, all of a sudden this voice shot through me, you know, it's like being hit by lightning, I'm sure for millions of people. And it then led me into discovering and exploring tons of other female vocals and female singers. Um, But my teachers continued to be mostly men, honestly. So I was getting like the, I was getting the mentorship through the speakers and through the headphones and then getting Mm. the in-person experience there. But as I um, got older and started singing in bands, um, by the time I was in my late 20s, I started working with Olabel, and that had uh, another woman in the band, Fiona McBain, who's a beautiful mm-hmm. singer. Um, and yeah, to be honest with you, as I'm, I'm, I'm retracing my steps as we're talking. I'm sorry, I'm kind of coming out of school pickup and kids and the dog and getting my coffee and getting my head into interview mode. So forgive me for, for wandering. Um, as I'm retracing sure. my steps, I can say that I didn't have as many female teachers. And I think that part of that was probably just that there weren't as many women doing it at that time, I think, as there are now, to be completely honest, or at least the ones I was around. Um, So it was in 
my record player. It was with my friends, with other girls that were trying to sing or learn instruments. It was um, in church with some of the singers there. It was from my grandmother's hymnal and the songs that she liked. And it was all of that passed down. And uh, it's just a very interesting thing to be 50 years old now and think back about that time coming up, which wasn't so long ago, right? It's not not someone in their 80s mm-hmm. reflecting back. It's not that long ago that that it wasn't as common to find and connect with a lot of women. And so I think by the time I was in my 30s and 40s, I was um, able to connect and cross paths with so many singers and so many women. And then that became my peers mm. became my teachers, I would say, you know, my peers became my teachers, um, starting with Fiona. I'm just going back in my mind to all the girls back then during the Olabel days that we crossed paths with Aoife O'Donovan, uh, Ruthie Unger from the Mammals, um, all the girls that were the greatest. Yeah. All the girls that were singing back there um, back then. And we kind of would, you know, dig each other's stuff and connect and call when we needed a talk down or or turn each other on to different music that we had been listening to. And so now, of course, you know, your your my female friendships and my female mentors like Mavis is a huge mentor to me. And I've she Mm. was someone who was present in my life from a young age up. But, you know, those people, that's your that's your foundation. Those are your rocks. Yeah. I saw the reason that was it was making me think of that question was that you posted this really great video of you and some young young women who maybe I couldn't tell if they were like teenagers yeah. uh, on your social media yeah. playing together and was like poof. Yeah. Yes, that's Kaya Dedeck, Story Littleton and Michaela Davis. Um and they're all very well I guess Story just turned 20. Um, Kaya is 18 and I'm not sure Michaela might mm. be in her early twenties, but not, not much out of her teens. So, um, that was a really powerful, powerful thing. And actually stories, mom, Elizabeth Mitchell, who's a fierce artist and musician. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, Elizabeth Mitchell's music and she does a bunch mm-hmm. of kids music and she's also produced a lot of records and she filmed that video and she had the idea, you know, we did that downstairs um, this actually ties beautifully into your question and the original idea of of female mentors and us kind of taking on the baton passed down, having having the having the flame passed down to the next generation of of girls. And Liz uh, Liz wanted to film that downstairs at the barn. We have this incredible kind of mini museum of of awards and cool pictures and cool things of different musicians and stuff my dad has done and so she purposely had that and we're kind of surrounded by my dad and Rick Danko and Byron Isaacs from Olabel and Tony and all these Hubert Sumlin and Muddy Waters and all these different different incredible players and um with all those beautiful young girls in that circle with them so it was it was a really nice idea on Liz's part yeah, yeah, I love that idea, and I also love that you now get to be there for them, and just thought it was really lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite favorite things. I love I love being at the age that I'm at, and being able to do that. It's 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 my favorite thing, really. I want to hear about the impact of singing hymns, uh, singing and learning hymns as a child. Uh, hymns were the first songs that you would sing at home with your dad and your grandparents. Um, so 
How do those hymns remain in your singing today? I warm up with them all the time. I love to warm up oh, with hymns. Okay. Yeah, I just, I love the simplicity of the melodies and... Um, I love the simplicity of the melody and also because of the simplicity of the melody, I can find it my, my kind of amateur-ish um, mandolin playing. So a lot of times if I'm sound checking, I like to use that with my mandolin to kind of get inside of the room and find out where the where my voice lays in it. Um, and I also use them for writing sometimes too, just singing a hymn and being pulled back to the simplicity of a line um, melodically and also lyrically and trying to kind of reflect some of that in my own writing too. Mm. Do you have um, some greatest hits for hymns that you like to pull out? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love the song Abide With Me, which I recently, it's come to mind because I recently started singing it at a gig at Soundcheck and Adam Levy, who's a phenomenal guitar player who I um, have had the opportunity to do some shows with this summer. He knew there's a version of it that I think Duke Ellington did that has these kind of incredible, obviously incredible, complex and reharmonized chords. But I know the simple one four five <laughs> version of it, and um, I love that song. I love the lyrics to that song um, and the melody. It's something to check out if, if anyone's listening and is into hymns. It's a nice one to learn. And um, I also love uh, one that's called um, thou, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, um, which is a song mm. Martha Scanlon taught me. Martha Scanlon's an incredible singer and songwriter, and she's one of my dearest friends. Um, and she, I never heard that hymn till she was singing it, and I just... That song, I just love the, I love the lyrics of that song. Come thou fount mm. of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. You know, it's like one of these hymns that you can pull right out of any kind of religious <laughs> liturgy or any of that. Yeah. And just put it right into, you know, something right in nature. It's a really nice place to, to sit with it. You describe your childhood as very colorful. That's a word. Uh, colorful comes yeah. up a lot. Um, you lived with your mom, who was mar- married to Dr. John for a little while, we were, or they were together uh, and together for seven years. Yeah, and is now married to Donald Fagan. Your dad was playing music with all sorts of different people in the band and with other bands, and you lived between Woodstock, L.A., New York City. You are a parent. You have two boys who are nine and 13. Yeah. So what has your childhood taught you about parenting and being a musician at the same time? Mm. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, it taught me a lot. Um, it taught me that I really wanted to break the cycle of addiction in my legacy in my history in my family history and i wanted to um create a household and a place that was safe and really consistent and something that fostered trust um Mm -hmm. and and i'm so grateful that i've had the opportunity and that i continue to have the opportunity to do that which is because of a lot of a lot of great teachers and a lot of great people. And because all the people that were so crazy that I grew up with watching them 
change their lives. You know, I got I got to watch a lot of people, unfortunately, fall victim to so much darkness and addiction. But I and and mm-hmm. I've seen people I've I've lost people to it, but I've also seen people survive it and change. And that's that that was that was a lot. And also dark humor gets you through a lot of stuff. I learned at a young age that, you know, a handful of dark jokes, you know, that can, uh, that can make things a lot easier. And I found people, you know, we all have stories and a lot of my friends have come through stuff. We all have stuff we've come through. And so finding some laughter about it and finding, learning how to create a place for yourself in your life. That's your own solid ground. And then trying to be a light to others and and get better at that. So I try every day to do that with my kids. Yeah. And and I I fail every day, but at least I'm walking <laughs> in the right direction. Uh a, a yeah. really a really great I, I'll just end to say because in case any any moms or dads or parents are listening, there's there's a beautiful catchphrase that a that a wonderful uh family counselor and therapist taught me that comes from attachment parenting, which is bigger, like whenever you're reacting to your kids, bigger, kinder, wiser, stronger. And I always keep that in my head, like to take a breath and be that and be that to ourselves Mm. and to our children, like to let that part of your divinity be present in your household. And that's what I try to do. I love it. Yeah. Okay, this next question is about the other rock and roll kids that you grew up with or maybe other rock and roll kids who are adults now. Um, So your understanding of what your dad's job was as a little kid is really funny. Um, You were like, oh, he plays drums in Rick Danko's band and Stage Fright is is their big hit. So, so precious. Um, at five years old, you were at the last waltz, which definitely is a fact that I texted my best friend today that I learned about. I was like, Amy Helmus, that's the last waltz. She was five. Uh, (laughs) but you were with the other kids and you said, I recall the backstage area where all the kids were put into this wild room with toys and snacks and babysitters. So like, how did you relate to those other kids of musicians? Do you have friendships with adults now who are kids of musicians? And is there like a special relationship there? Yeah, I do have I do have friends that are kids of musicians. And I think, you know, related to them at the time, you know, uh, especially like in the high school years, there's a sometimes it was I, I, I don't know if it's specific to having f- parents that are, have some kind of fame or public recognition, but, you know, you get self-conscious about how you're seen as your parent's kid. And, I, and I'm starting to see that, yeah, there's mm. some of that that has to do with, like, your dad or your mom's on stage, but I think everybody feels that way. Like, you know, I live in a small town, and I see that now with teenagers. I'm like, oh, everybody's like, you know, my friend's kid, and my friend owns the hardware store, and they, like, they, like, embarrassed when someone's like knows the guy from the hardware store there's that aspect to it right but um i think there was a camaraderie it's like an expectation yes or like having to take you know we all take the projections onto us and i i do think this is more exaggerated mm-hmm. in a small town but you know everybody knows each other in a small town and people project onto you what they know of you from your family whether you're in rock and roll or carpentry you know it's kind of like I think that's just part of human nature but um anyway I say all of that to to say I think there was a there was a camaraderie with some of 
the kids that were growing up who had the same self-consciousness about their parents doing the mm-hmm. same thing and um, managing the same projections onto you a little bit. Um, and I'm still friends with a lot of, I mean, Graham Lesh is a really dear friend of mine and we're in a band together and I play a lot of music with him and he's a wonderful guy. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's fun, funny to talk in, in shorthand about, about something, but um, yeah, those, those are, those are cool friendships. It's, it's nice to have that simpatico about, you know, Mm-hmm. understanding you know if you're gonna if you're gonna choose music as a career and your parents play music it's gonna be you're gonna talk about it your whole career and there's incredible rewards to that and sometimes it can be you know you have to you have to align yourself with it and not let it be something mm-hmm. that makes you feel self-conscious I think Okay, um, you're 16 years old, and you get a tape of Big Pink, I think from your mom, um, and you really fell for the music as a fan, which is rad. Like at that, Up until then, you were like, my dad plays in Rick Danko's band, but then you're listening to Big Pink, you love it, you're 16. That act of discovering that music by listening in the way you did at that age, it, it just sounds like... Regardless or not, if it's your dad on the on the album or not, it just sounds like such an important, poignant moment for you. So um, can you talk about being that age and taking that music in on your bus rides? Like, where was your headspace at that time? And like, what music meant to you as a 16-year-old? Yeah, that's funny. I was just telling my 13-year-old son who's a deep music head. He's a drummer and deep into music. And like, he was just asked, I was just telling him the same story. And um, he was so, it was so curious to him that I discovered the band without attaching it to it being my dad. I was trying to describe that experience to him, this kind of impersonal taking in of the music. But, but anyway, yeah, I just remember I was on the bus. I had this long bus ride because I hated the subway. So I'd take this like 45 minute bus ride up to 91st Street and Broadway to where I went to high school all the way from 21st Street. And um, at the time I was listening to tons of Aretha Franklin, Jimi Hendrix and modern stuff, the Go-Go's, Tom Petty, everything that was being played on the radio in 1980, mm-hmm. whatever it was, 85. But um it was Richard Manuel's voice, especially singing Lonesome Susie. That was like, it's, it, it just, I, I just couldn't even comprehend. It was like someone seeing the ocean for the first time, you know, or seeing the Grand wow. Canyon. I just remember feeling this, just this, just, it was so, it wasn't moving. It was just, it was like I was seeing a new landscape, a new territory. I couldn't believe it existed. And I still feel that way every time I hear him sing. Every time I hear him sing, I'm like, God, if I could sing one little line of music and get it halfway as real and as unique as that, then maybe I've done something good. You know, he's just such an extraordinary rare bird of a voice and so that's that was the that was the memory of it and um it is a funny thing and I I was like I said I was telling Lee this story and he said well 
what do you mean you didn't think of it being your dad? And he said, well, do, were you seeing Papa a lot then? And I was like, actually, no, I hadn't seen him. You know, that was at a time when my dad was really not present in my life at all because he was very much kind of falling prey to addiction and isolating and disappearing at that time. So, mm. and Lee said to me, my son said, well, maybe, maybe you didn't want to know it was your dad. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty deep, but I thought about it and I thought, yeah, yeah you know, you're right. It was this funny experience where like maybe because that was too painful but then the musical part of me and my sing the part of me that was a singer was like able to get flooded with it in some different way I don't know it was strange um okay now we get to the Mary Gaucher fan club oh, part of the interview she's the best uh, of all I'm, time I just started reading her book did have you picked it up yet? I ordered three copies and I'm intending on beginning it next week. Yeah, is yeah. I was I saw her at a um, festival recently and she was um, selling her book and I was thinking like I need to buy this person a copy, this person a copy, this person a copy. Like I hadn't even read the book and I yeah. I ordered a bunch of copies as gifts for sure. Yeah. Oof, it I imagine I'm going to try to read it as slow as possible because it's so it's so I'm in two chapters in it's amazing. Yeah. Anywho, um, there is a song on the record that you and Mary wrote called Cotton and the Cane, which yeah. you said is a, a, a homage to the village of brilliant and talented people who are also wrestling with the grips of addiction. And I read that the song has been written for like four years. Um, yeah. But writing with Mary was like I think the first time you talked about that experience outside of like close friends um what was that like about the vulnerability and courage it took for you to address the addiction and that the addiction that people in your life had experienced it was very vulnerable and and I had never really spoken about it because you know I wasn't I came to, I've been singing for a really long time in a lot of different bands, but I came to my solo career later in life. I put out my first record when I was 44. And so, you know, when I was in Olabel and in my dad's band and different projects, I wouldn't have to do interviews that were so personal. It would always be focusing mm. back on the collaboration. So I wasn't used to talking about it and doing that with ease and with self-trust you know and that song was definitely a bridge for me with that and um and also I think being a mom you know my kids getting a little bit older and starting to talk to them about what that is in our family's history and how I grew up and they ask you know your kids ask you questions and you kind of tell mm -hmm. your story to them and then you're able to stand in your story at least for me I've experienced that I stood in myself a lot differently after having to teach my kids about how I came up and that song sort of um, perfectly collided in a sense or or crossed paths with that time in my life as a mom when I was starting to tell the kids my story and it was it was liberating and now when I sing that song live I it's you know it's amazing to remember how many millions of people are affected by alcoholism and drug addiction I mean it's just it's 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 everywhere so when I sing that yeah. song and I talk a little bit about coming through it and you know I'll have at least 10 people every night come up and say something to me or share share their experience with addiction with me about that. So it's been, it's, mm. 
it's been a nice reminder of just the humanity we all hold and open conversations and and kind of the release the relief of that you know the freedom of of being able to to say what we've gone through and and not hold it with any shame or embarrassment and you really picked the perfect person to co-write that song with yes. Mary Gaucher. Yes, I, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. yeah, I know. That happened, you know. Yeah, that happened. She and I are, are very in sync with our with a lot of that stuff. We've had similar experiences, mm. I think, with some of that. In chapter two of her book, halfway through through the chapter, I'm like, How is she alive? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Yeah. Um so you sang with your dad on the road with his blues band, The Barn Burners, and this was a time uh, where you were, like, not ready to perform, but he he thought you were. Yeah. Um, and you were learning how to perform kind of like trial by fire. What did that time teach you about, like, confidence in yourself, the ability to be courageous and push yourself outside your comfort zone? Oh, man, everything. <laughs> I was like... That was the deep blue sea, man. That was the deep dive. That was the beginning. <laughs> and then I, I, I think again, you know, I got a second round of that from my father singing in the Ramble Band because that was a different extension of that extension of having to kind of step up and stand up, stand there and make the song happen. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, you know, every night that I went out on stage, I was seen as nothing more and nothing less than Levon's daughter with like a a little spotlight around me. And Mm -hmm. um, I was very young and I was very green and I was tremblingly insecure and I was a natural singer and had found my voice in one part of myself and with my teachers in jazz and in school and with my peers, but I was not... I was never a very ambitious, kind of driven musician. I more was just kind of playing with people and playing in pockets and finding the next band and trying to get better, right? So when I would walk Mm -hmm. out onto these stages um, with that projection onto me and, and could feel the expectation and could feel the incredible admiration people had for my dad... And then here I came, not <laughs> good heart, you know, do, just do, do, barely, do. <laughs> barely getting through a blues song and like dying inside, right? And it was baptism by fire, man. It was baptism by fire. And I, I really was not very good then. I wasn't, I had the natural talent, but I didn't have the knowing of how to hold myself in it. And, you know, frankly, to be completely honest, I I mean, this is all coming to me as because I haven't had questions asked like this in a long time, if ever. And honestly, the first question you asked me about female teachers, like, I wonder if I would have felt differently. I'm not taking anything away from my dad. He was great. But part of that was not having, you know, because now at 50, I see these young girls, like the girls that I've got to teach myself, Kaya and these girls, and Mm -hmm. I see what they do at Rock Academy, and I see what they do in the music schools. And if I had had a group of strong women teaching me and showing me how to go out on stage and teach me how to do that stuff, maybe it would have felt differently. And I had some of that yeah, Levon wasn't playing, he wasn't playing like the Lilith Fair or Michigan Women's <laughs> Festival or no, anything and he, like that. No, and he was also, he was very old school, you know, he was, which was, 
which was cool. Like for him, he didn't really give a shit about what people thought in the truest of ways, right? If I was like, Dad, I feel embarrassed or insecure because these people think I'm your daughter and all they wanted that. And he was like, he was just a different generation. He was like, honey, don't worry about that shit. Just get out there and play, you know, serve the song, serve the song, put that bullshit out of your mind and serve the tune. And and that's where he was at, which was very strong. But I had to figure out how to do that on my own because he couldn't feel what I was feeling up there, you know. So anyway, this is a long story, but I'll end it with this to say we did a three-week tour. We did 15 shows in 18 days. I remember this. I was I was maybe Oof. 27, but I felt like I was about 14. And um, I just kept hating it and hating it. And then finally we played this gig and all the coolest musicians in Memphis were in the audience. I mean the baddest ass of asses of them all, right? <laughs> Steve Cropper, all these fucking guys. And I got out on stage and I don't know what happened. This is the only time this ever happened to me. And I started to sing the song in harmony and I was singing the right harmony, but I was a quarter step out of the key and I couldn't get back in. And I felt myself just dying in real time on stage like a ship sinking in slow motion I couldn't get back in key and there they all were all the musicians that had made all those records the Stax family everybody in Memphis and my dad and I got back to the hotel in Memphis and I kind of had this moment with myself that was like are you gonna do this or not because if you want to do this you have to push forward right now and never look back. Otherwise, walk away from it and forgive yourself and move, just move in a direction. So I made mm -hmm. that choice and I finished that tour. And by the end of that tour, I had gotten something that no one else could give me. You know, I could feel it when I took the stage. Um, wow. That was my beginning. Yeah. I, a quick question about Ola Bell. Well, it's not a quick, take as long as you want. So it's my understanding you went to New Orleans for a year and you were able to do a deep dive into gospel music. And then you moved to New York City and it was right after September 11th, you started taking part in the Songs for Singers gospel swap. And out of that came Ola Bell. Songs for Sinners. Yeah. Songs for Sinners. Songs for Sinners. Yeah. That's me. No, no, that's fine. That's what the uh, bartender at this bar named. He wanted to start a Sunday night, and he had a little fabric that he hung over the jukebox so no one could play the songs, Songs for Sinners. And it was like a gospel night, with, but we didn't want any of the religion in it. We wanted that everybody wanted the healing of it. It was right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And out of that came Ola Bell, uh, and the band recorded three records and a live record performed gospel songs, songs from the Al Nomax collection. So a lot of religious music. What did Ola Bell's non-secular catalog show you about people having the ability to connect to spiritual music, even if they are not religious? Oh, yeah. Well, that was an incredible thing because this was the Lower East Side of Manhattan and people just wanted to hear something that reminded them of faith, whatever that faith looked like. We could be singing about Jesus and someone could be in there, the biggest atheist on the block, and it didn't matter. People just needed to hear 
that somewhere, somehow, pe people were believing in something bigger than themselves. And that was a very powerful time. I'll never forget that, singing, the, singing in that bar at that time, kind of putting it mm. together in retrospect and, and thinking about that. And it was unusual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the Rambles started in 2004, and you had gone on the road with your dad, and it was just like right before that, um, your relationship with your dad started to heal. You guys became really, really close, uh, and he had been just recovered from addiction, just recovered from throat cancer, and also had filed for bankruptcy. So the Rambles kind of started as like a rent party situation. Yes. Yeah. Pretty cool. And then they turned into these like institutions featuring all these names and rock and roll. Um, and I heard you tell I heard you tell this story. I can't remember whose podcast it was. It was another musician who plays with Susan and Derek Tedeschi. Eric band. Krasno, maybe? Yeah. yeah. I was listening to you on his podcast and I and I think it was there where you told this incredible story of Levon getting back into singing after his treatment and his voice was like really weak and he being kind of afraid to sing and you would like whisper sing the songs with him yes yeah yeah he'd have me um he'd have me sing the un sing unison with him but i would do it really quiet on the mic so it was sort of there like a it was like a safety net so that if his voice fell out you know i would be there and i'd hold the melody for a couple lines and then until he got his voice back. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always like a time in someone's life if they're lucky enough to have their parents for long enough where like the roles kind of start reversing. Yeah. You know, mm. like talk about like truly supporting a parent. I mean, it was so profound. And also, you know, I had gone through my own my own changes and 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 growth and my own uh what's the word I'm looking for? Not I guess my own evolution, or at least my first stage of evolution with the stories we were just talking about back when I was in my 20s with him trying to find my own voice as a singer and then to be able to use, you know, to then have it flip and kind of hand him what I had found and us, you know, it, it was a very special time. And, and um, yeah, and he really gave me, in that time, he gave me, just so much. I mean, it's I, it's hard to really articulate, but yes, to take care of our mm. parents and to watch them, and help them is 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 a beautiful thing. And to be able to do it musically was was profound. Mm. My heart just exploded. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was heavy. It was heavy for sure. It was heavy. I don't think I'd. I don't think I would be singing if it weren't for my dad. And I'm, that means a lot to mm. me because I just, I just love singing so much. Like I said to someone, even if I had to, if I was given the choice to come back for a hundred lifetimes as a broke singer, even singing in the tiniest dive bars forever for $5, I, I think I would do it. There's just nothing, nothing more satisfying than it. So he gave me what, what my joy was, you know. I also really like it when you talk about how Levon Helm was not into like the music industry side of being a musician, like not into the pecking order, 
not into being a cool guy. He was a working musician's musician, not into the scene. But he was really into making people feel like they belong, make people feel connected to each other. And from that, like, where do you fall in when it comes to wanting to, like, walk that line of maybe wanting to have cool industry people paying attention to you and an industry-driven career, that particular type of validation, and then actually, like, if it, if that doesn't feel comfortable for you wanting to live a genuine life? Oh, I'm trying to figure that out every day. I mean, that's, you know, I'm very lucky that I have really wonderful people helping me manage me and book shows for me. And when this record came out, these wonderful people who do press, they hired them for me. And thank God, because if it were left to me, I'm the worst. I, 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 barely, I barely remember to tell my friends when I'm playing in the town they live in. I'm just the worst um, because I, I don't know why, because, I, because I'm busy, I'm a mom, I'm distracted. And I do, I do find that part of the industry, ah, it's, just a, it's just an unfortunate, it's just an unfortunate part of the music industry and I guess any artistic industry, but I'm so much more into collaboration. And, and so I balance it with that. There's my answer. I, I really balance it with that because we all have to play the game to some, some degree. We have to network and meet people and sometimes do gigs we don't want to do because it's the right gig to do. And there is that. It's unavoidable. But, um, you know, I think it's important for all of us to ground and get back to our people, our musical tribe. We all have that where we live. I have a great i'm part of such a network of folks here in woodstock it's like amazing i can't even believe the people i get to call friends and neighbors and so that's how i do it coming back and grounding with with my community really and that's that's what i'm trying to do at the barn you know i'm trying to make to continue mm. the legacy there with that so that the barn is a place of community and um an opportunity for all musicians whether they're considered hip or not you know because that mm. that you don't want to you don't want to get lost in that that's a that's a bunch of bullshit that nobody needs you know when do you learn that lesson what do what age? <laughs> i don't know i'm <laughs> when still will it I'm, come? <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm 50 and i'm still trying to learn it i i think we just cling together and and find a better way through <laughs> every year right okay. that's kind of how we do it good deal speaking of the barn uh, your dad and Garth Hudson designed, designed and built the barn for musicians by musicians. Um, I have never been to the barn, unfortunately, but like have known about it by reputation for, uh, you know, 20 years or so. I'm wondering like what lessons you have learned from the barn about your musicality. And there's probably so much, but what you have learned from the barn that you try to take with you either on the road or in performing in other places? I think from uh, the physical space alone, the barn is, it sounds beautiful. Like to stand on that stage before a show with no lights on, no PA system, no microphones. It's just a beautiful sounding room. And because it was built by such thoughtful and connected kind of touched musicians you know what i mean people that were mm -hmm. that were thinking about this in a spiritually energetic way and so it it has that feeling when you just stand there 
and open your mouth and sing or take your instrument and play it in the empty room. There's a frequency there and, and it connects you to the song pretty immediately. And so that's a nice feeling to try to take with you when you go onto other stages. And I think there's a few, few places that make you feel that way. You know, there's a couple rooms, there's a handful of rooms in the States that, that have that. And, um, so I think the barn is one of those. And I, I do take that with me and also just, um, you know, just trying to stay open about music. I think that we can always learn something. I get the opportunity to see so many bands at the barn and hear so much music. And, um, I just think you can always learn something, even if it's not your thing that you think you'd usually like, or the, the, the genre that you're used to. And so, you know, it's, Staying open, staying aligned with 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 what feels good to you in a, in a physical space. I think those are the two things that mm. I try to take with me. You had originally wanted wanted to record what the flood leaves behind in the Mexican desert, which I totally support. And next time <laughs> when you do that, I want to stop by and visit. <laughs> you know what? Um, You're the only person. I feel it. Is that is that a potential gender difference? I don't know because I say that, and every time I said that, it must have been mostly men. We're kind of like, huh? But I feel like every woman, and especially every mom who's heard me say that, is like, oh yeah, I get it. She wanted to like get out of Dodge, you know? Yeah, I wanted to go on vacation. I wanted to be in some incredible little building with a plunge pool out the back. (laughs) Totally need the plunge pool. If you're not on the beach, you need the plunge pool. Yeah. For sure. I love Mexico and support any any trips. Um, (laughs) But you ran the numbers and you're like, I guess it makes more sense to record at the barn. Yes. Um, However... So this album sounds like you are in this comfortable kind of like at home feeling. That's what you get when, well, I get when I listen to it. And, you know, we always want to mix it up and crawl outside our comfort zone. And you and I have already discussed doing that in this interview. But what can you say about embracing that comfort, embracing familiarity? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm probably, re- I'm repeating myself, I'm sure, from other interviews, but it really is, my, my true answer to that is that I was really humbled by the room, of course, after my Mexican desert fantasy and, and all of that stuff. When I walked into that room, you know, the room is just a special place. And and I think also, I I think that those songs and the time I was at in my life, which was not that long ago, we did that record um, a year and a half ago, you know, I think it needed to be there. It needed to be in my home with all of the ghosts and all of the difficult memories and beautiful memories and, and a room that I learned how to make music in. And I think, I think mm-hmm. the record needed to happen there. So it was humbling. You know, when when you make an album, there's this other thing that, that comes into play, this, you know, for however you want to call it, the Holy Spirit or some kind of energy or the muse, um, the creative kind of mist. Every record I've ever done or been a part of, you always see it kind of comes in and shapes it the way it wants it. So I think in this hmm. case, the room was part of that. Josh Kaufman produced the record and he's... Um, it's funny. I met Josh like in 2008, I think, 
he was in Don Landis's touring band and also in Balthrop, Alabama, this band of just like incredible people. And Annie, his wife, was playing bass in that band. She's and, incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing to see what he's been doing recently, producing all these amazing records, including yours. Um, he's been working with Josh Ritter, Taylor Swift, The National, and The Hold Steady. He is truly uh, having a moment. Um, and you and Josh had great chemistry and decided to work together and made the record at the barn, which you have described as being like a tuning fork for the for the album. I want to know about like, how do you think Josh and the barn work together? Well, I think that Josh and all the players that were part of the record, um, Phil Cook and, and Tony Mason and Dan Goodwin, who engineered the record, Michael Libramento, um, Dan Littleton, they all had the same response to the room that I was having, but it was their own relationship to it, you know. Obviously, without they didn't have the childhood memories, but everybody was having their own interaction with it, and, and um, it was palpable. I mean, we talked about it every day. We'd get in. It's like we knew we were in something special. We just all could feel it when we got in there. So I think Josh really loved making the record there. And I just actually did a very cool video with Josh and Annie. Annie came and played bass, and we did a version of Cotton in the Cane at the barn uh, and met there just last week, actually. So, you know, we were once again just talking about the, the room itself and the specialness of it. Mm. So you recorded this record right before the pandemic hit and released it the year after yeah. the pandemic hit. Um, verse 23 is a really important song on the record. It's where the title comes from. Um, the line is, what the flood leaves behind is what we've got to make. And it sounds like that line is really meaningful to you. And I want to know like, what it means to you and how it might have changed for you since the start of the pandemic. We were talking about that as a title before the pandemic hit. And that's what I had kind of landed on just because I loved the, I love that idea of resurrection, rebirth, you know, what the flood leaves behind is what we've got to make. Like we build ourselves up from the things that are painful, leave us with the things we build from. I mean, it just is part of living. Right. Um, and then of course, with the pandemic, it just became it was not, it was accidental to give it that title. And mm. it was accidental that the thing got released right after this, this, you know, this shutdown, but um, it's fitting. And I, and I've had the chance to sing that song. I haven't done much touring this summer, um, but I've played a handful of shows and gotten to play these songs live maybe 10 or 15 times. And when I've done verse 23, I can feel the impact of that lyric on people. Mm. You know, it's interesting. So your two boys, Huey is nine and Lee is 13 and Lee is turning into like... Lee is, tur Lee is turning into, a, a, I don't even know what, a 40-year-old something and Huey just turned 10. <laughs> and oh, Lee, yeah. double digits. That's double a big digits. deal. Double digits. It's a big deal. Just turned 10 two weeks ago. So yeah, we went to Zoom Flume. We went to a water park. He's doing great. He had his first day of fourth grade today. Lee is 13. 
He loves music. He loves the Grateful Dead. He loves playing drums. He's got a band with his, he's got all these really awesome, talented friends that are all his age. They have a band. They haven't titled it yet, but you'll be hearing about it soon enough, I'm sure. <laughs> they're That's they're cool. very driven. They're great. I heard about your secret scheme to get them both as your rhythm section. Oh, yeah. That would be, that would be fantastic. I've got to get Huey on bass. He's a little resistant right now, but, but I'm working on it. You're like, no, mommy is getting, mommy needs yeah. a band. Yeah. It's, it's going right. to work out. You're yeah. going to love it. Yeah. Put soccer to the side. Let's work on your bass playing. I, <laughs> let's get the charts going. Um, so especially since Lee is a drummer, what do you, your boys understand about their granddad's legacy, and how do you keep Levon in their life? Uh, you know, they they do they. I think they under they understand it. Lee, of course, understands it a bit more, and um, they have a great perspective about it. Lee has a great perspective about it, and also Lee has like really incredible music teachers here. He's and Lee is homeschooled, so my younger son is in the regular school here and and Lee has been homeschooling for the past few years. So he does a music class with Mike and Ruthie. Um, He has an incredible set of teachers at Rock Academy, which is run by Jason Bowman, who's a great drummer and great musician. And he's just got um, all of my friends, Tony Leone and Tony Mason and all the drummers that I know that come up for Ramble Band stuff. And Zach and Connor, our, our whole tribe is kind of you know, taken him under their wing and, and he has all of these friends that play too. So he's just got a great perspective on, on respecting who his grandfather was and, but not, um, letting, he's not self-conscious of it. Yeah. He's just, he's very balanced about it. Um, before we go, will you do the lightning round? The lightning round. Sure. What is that? Yes. It's where I ask you fun questions. Uh, to show uh, that we all contain multitudes, and uh, <laughs> okay. there, you'll enjoy it, or okay. you won't. You might okay. not enjoy it. Okay. okay, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? <sighs> I can think of the chords, but I don't play a lot of guitar. Maybe I'll tell you the first song I learned on the mandolin, because I never played a lot of guitar. Axis Bold as Love, Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> The great mandolin song. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic uh, for mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> what is your karaoke song? Oh, I've never done karaoke, but if I did it, I want to do karaoke. It would be um, maybe Dim All the Lights, Donna Summer. I would suggest uh, at the barn one night to do live band karaoke. That might oh, be yes. With all your pals. Ask Mike and Ruthie about that. Yeah. Um, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Oh, at Starbucks? Uh, sh- uh, either a triple espresso in a short cup with steamed half and half on the side. I like to add it myself. Or if I'm in a rush and I don't want to go through the hardcore because they're like, what? How do I ring that up? And blah, blah, blah. It's a short, <laughs> <laughs> it's a short flat white extra hot. Great. Complicated. Love it. I'm, I'm, um, yeah. First... First celebrity crush. First celebrity. Ricky Schroeder. Oh. <laughs> John Cusack in high school. Oh, good one. Um, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? I've met a bunch. Melissa Etheridge comes to mind. 
I don't know her well, I got to shake her hand. I don't think she would remember me or know who I was, but I got to shake her hand once backstage when we were opening for Phil Lesh at some festival with my dad and she watched our show and she was so, I just wanted to hang out with her. She was just so cool and sweet. But I've met a lot. Bonnie Raitt's very nice. Elvis Costello is very nice. But Melissa Etheridge comes to mind first. First album you bought with your own money? Mm, Probably the Go-Go's. What was your first concert? Oh, my first concert that wasn't the band. The band, obviously, was my first concert because I was drugged up to a bunch of those shows. But my first non-band concert was The Police. And there is one of my first crushes, uh, Stuart Copeland. That's the drummer's name, right? No, Stuart Copeland's from the Eurythmics. What's the drummer's name? No, Stuart Copeland. Am I right? I think that's right. Yeah. Well, I That name sounds very familiar to me. As long as Stuart Copeland is the drummer of the police, I just want to go on record to say that I was 11 years old or 12 watching him in an amphitheater in Minnesota, and I was madly in love with him forever from that moment on. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones. Oh, but you're not a bad kid. (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles are for the good kids and the Rolling Stones are for the bad kids. Oh, yeah. I guess maybe you are a bad kid. Bad in some, bad in the way a dorky rule follower could be bad, yeah. (laughs) I think. (laughs) Bad to the bone. Bad to the bone. Uh, Okay. Here's... The last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? That is a really hard question. There's so many beautiful places that I've seen and in the world, but I think that my most beautiful place is when the light is perfect in the late afternoon coming through my kitchen window and it's quiet in the house and I've just made a cup of coffee and the trees and the mountains are just outside my window and my kitchen is just like flooded with this silent, perfect moment. That's the most beautiful place. That's my my afternoon coffee before anyone needs anything. No, <laughs> no gigs, no kids, no work, no nothing, just total quiet. I love that. That's a really good answer. Love thank that. Thank you, thanks. Amy, thank you so much for, for talking and taking so much time. Thank you for the questions. What an incredible interview. Much has left me much to think about and write about. It's it's a it's it's good good questions to to um, continue to dig into our stories and stuff. Thank you. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. And you can hear all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts or at basicfolk.com. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.